This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. You want to use your vote to back the sort of policies and plans you think would improve things that matter, but plenty of parties are making plenty of promises, so where do you go to weigh up what they're offering? This week, Media Watch looks at the tools the media made to help us compare and contrast the party's proposals, and we ask an expert which ones might really help and how. With any of these, the downside really is is the person or the people who set the questions and who set exactly which policy areas are going to be examined. Now it's never up there with tax, health and education at election time, but the media are important to many Kiwis and the government spends nearly a quarter of a billion dollars of their money on it each year and rising. So what have they got in the way of ideas in case it might swing your support? But first, Auckland's return to Level 1 after cleaning out community transmission was a cause for celebration, but not, though, in certain circles of the media. Kia ora, good evening. We've done it. We've crushed COVID and we're all aboard the midnight train to Level 1. In just under six hours' time, social distancing will be a fond memory. That was News Hub at 6 with great news for Aucklanders. Back to Level 1 as soon as Wednesday morning. As she put it, back to normal. Though not quite normal, borders are of course still closed to all but those returning home and a few other special cases who will go into managed isolation and quarantine. And that made this, in an RNZ News Bulletin last weekend, interesting. Holiday parks are filling up fast for summer as New Zealanders act on the call to travel domestically. The chief executive of Holiday Parks New Zealand, Fergus Brown, says there's been strong interest in camping spots, with overseas trips likely off the table. He says people are spreading out and seeing somewhere new. They include Mr Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, his former adviser, Kelly... Well, that's obviously not uh, the right piece of audio there. RNZ's Phil O'Brien was right about that. That was a piece of audio from the preceding item about the illness spreading in Washington. And back on News Hub at 6 on Monday, reporter Jenna Lynch and some randoms she vox popped welcomed the upcoming move to Level 1. Probably being able to go out, hang out with like heaps of friends again. And I really miss being able to like go to the theatre or go to a concert. Getting back to what should be normal. I get to go out and socialise with my friends, hang out, do some dancing. <laughs> a resounding victory for the team of five million. But earlier that day, the almost ubiquitous University of Otago epidemiologist Michael Baker told NewsHub that Wednesday would be too soon and Level 1 too risky. And on Tuesday, he told TVNZ's Breakfast the government, and specifically Cabinet, had got it wrong. We're going straight to Level 1, and I think that's actually the wrong choice. We should have this other level at least for a few weeks till we're certain that this outbreak is definitely finished. Meanwhile, Auckland Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Michael Barnett told NewsHub Alert Level 1 was already overdue with some businesses only able to operate at half capacity. And on RNZ's Morning Report, economist Rodney Jones said the government was a week late. Each week is 2% of GDP across the country. We forget how you know, important each week is. So by reducing the amount of time we're under lockdowns, we can still get back to zero. And we can just allow a bit more kind of economic activity while we're doing. But this, of course, wasn't a nationwide lockdown, and wouldn't it be a big risk to relax the rules before a full 14-day infection cycle had passed and there could be confidence that the cluster there had been crushed? Well, not according to Rodney Jones for this reason. The toolkit we have is really first class in terms of the contact tracing, in terms of the testing, and particularly the genome tracing that gives us, or sequencing, that gives us an enormous understanding of each outbreak. 
So I think we can take more risk. Rodney Jones' faith in the government toolkit was at odds with the bungles at the border narrative that had played out in parts of the media during the Level 3 lockdown in Auckland. And on the air last Monday, Heather Duplessy-Ellen blamed the government for being two days late with Level 1. It is because the government hasn't done the paperwork. If you are a bar owner, if you are a restaurant owner, a retailer in the events industry, or if you're working for any one of these kinds of businesses, you should know that that is the reason that you cannot open your doors fully. Now, the paperwork she was speaking of there was the gazetting of the alert level move. Under the COVID-19 Public Health Response Act, this needs to be done at least 48 hours before it comes into force. And on News Talk ZB, Heather Duplessy-Allen said that was the only reason that the change was not ready to roll on Monday rather than Wednesday. Honestly, I cannot tell you right now how frustrated I am on behalf of businesses today. How can we really ask these businesses to keep taking a hit for another two days when there is no reason for them to do this? We haven't had a case of COVID in the community since September 20. That is two weeks ago. Well, the last time a case was out and about in the community that we know of was on September the 20th. That person was still incubating the virus on day 12 when they tested negative, and then they boarded a flight to Auckland on September the 11th, sitting behind a man who'd later tested positive on September the 19th. But the last community case was actually a woman already in isolation linked to the Mount Roskill Church cluster, and that was on September the 24th, so not a full 14-day cycle had been completed after that, though any spread did appear to be contained. It was not until Monday that Auckland University professor Sean Hendy's modelling concluded there was a 95% chance that COVID-19 had been eliminated. And the same day, NZME's head of business, Fran O'Sullivan, told Heather Duplessy-Ellen the government's move was unfair on election opponents campaigning in Auckland. You do have to wonder at times whether some of the um, gaming of all of this has been to get in the way of other people campaigning. I mean, let's face it, you know, you could have been going uh, much harder in Auckland if you were an opposition party in the last little while, if it was in level one. When Finance Minister Grant Robertson appeared for his regular slot on Heather Duplessy-Allen's show, he said the government only wanted to act on up-to-date data to make the Level 1 announcement one which would be impossible to reverse. What's served New Zealand incredibly well from day one here? We've had a plan and we've stuck to it. We've had all sorts of people come through over the last few months telling us we should move out of Level 4 earlier, move out of Level 3 earlier, well, you should open have. the border, close the border... No, but we've stuck to the plan and it's served us well. And here we are again in Level 1, which the Oxford University Stringency Index will tell you is the most open economy in the world right now. Well, as we've heard here on Media Watch in the past, there certainly has been a lot of conflicting and contradictory advice on alert level movements and border restrictions from ZB's on-air hosts. But Heather Duplessis uncountered that, saying that on the previous occasion Auckland moved to level one in June, along with the rest of the country, there was no 48-hour delay on that announcement. So why not this time? You'll bear in mind with the rest of the country, we hadn't seen any cases. And so in Auckland, obviously, we had. That's where the cases were. And so we take our advice very seriously that we get from the Ministry of Health. And, you know, as I say, this has served us well. And Grant Robertson went on to point out that many businesses were not actually closed but operating under capacity, and few of them would fire staff over a two-day delay given that the signals they'd been given of opening day had been clearly conveyed. And once at level one, some would see a spike in trade and income thanks to pent-up demand. Remember those queues at KFC when the country moved to level three and at hairdressers when we moved to level two. 
Having thanked the finance minister for his time eventually, Heather Duplessy-Allen told her listeners this. That is all we needed to hear, because if what you were thinking, if you were getting lulled into this kind of false sense that this particular government is happy to urgently close and then urgently open, respond in equal measure to health concerns and economic concerns, you got your answer, and that is all that we need to know. We just need to know where they stand on that, and I think we do. But the following morning, early edition host Tim Dow was still not satisfied. The virus was gone, he said, and we were still too afraid. If there was any scrap of the virus still circulating amongst ordinary people, we would have seen the evidence. The A&E units would have been packed out, GPs would have seen it, Healthline would be hearing about it, but they haven't. It is not there. And what we know about this virus is that when it is present, when one person's got it, crikey does it spread, like wildfire. Well, yes, it does. But what we now also know was, as he put it, how long the virus takes to incubate, allowing clusters to spread many days before they can be detected, making premature changes of alert level a real risk. And as if to illustrate that, this was the day's news from New York, which would give events and hospitality businesses there a much bigger headache. Areas will be designated with the colour red, orange or yellow based on the severity of an outbreak or the proximity to where cases have been reported. In red areas that include a part of South Brooklyn and two smaller zones in Queens, New York, mass gatherings will be banned, all non-essential businesses must close, restaurants open for takeout only. Ample evidence there of the hazards for businesses of opening up before COVID clusters are confirmed to have been properly closed down. As the leader of the main opposition party in an election campaign in its final fortnight, Judith Collins would have been expecting a lot of scrutiny from the media and especially from those up close and personal on the campaign trail with her. And earlier this week she had to fend off questions after photos of her with her hands clasped kneeling in prayer in a church, raised eyebrows and then inquiries from the media asking if she was politicising her hitherto not much mentioned Christian faith. Now, for the National Party leader, any controversy over this was down to the media, intruding, uninvited on her moment of contemplation, though the journalists there at the time see things a little differently, as Hayden Donnell discovered. Last Sunday, Judith Collins invited the media along to watch her cast an advance vote at St Thomas Anglican Church in Kohimanama. It should have been a straightforward, low-risk media opportunity. Jacinda Ardern had cast her own advance vote the previous day, confirming afterwards she had delivered two ticks labour. Instead, the event triggered journalistic scepticism. Judith Collins was criticised after being pictured praying in the pews before her vote was cast. Critics said the prayer was another attempt to politicise her faith. She had conspicuously mentioned her Christian beliefs in both leaders' debates, and commentators had speculated that the tactics were an effort to stop national voters leaking to the new Conservatives. New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters posted a quote from Matthew 6 to Twitter, which reads, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Judith Collins hit back at those who thought her prayer was staged the following day, telling Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB that she hadn't invited the journalists to watch her pray. Are you politicising Christianity? No, I'm not. In fact, I, I felt that quite, um, I thought that was quite abusive, frankly. I've been an Anglican all my life. I was brought up 
as such, confirmed, and um, we just happened to be voting in a church because, strangely enough, they're open on Sunday. And uh, the minister said, oh, would you like to pop in and have a prayer, Judith? And I said, yes, I would. I didn't ask the media in, and I turned around and there they were, all happily uh, taking shots. Several reporters I spoke to took exception to that, saying the national leader hadn't just happened upon the media. One reporter who attended noted that politicians are heavily media managed and don't usually have a problem telling journalists when things are off the record. So what really happened on that day at the chapel? RNZ's Katie Scotcher was one of the reporters who snapped Judith Collins at prayer. First of all, just set the scene. Judith Collins is casting her advance vote at St Thomas Church. Mm-hmm. So we're all standing outside the church. The media had been invited to be there. It was as, it was part of her itinerary for the Sunday. Uh, we get one every day for the party leaders, what they're up to for that day and what events media are invited to. Um, so, yeah, there was a small group of reporters and cameramen and camera people standing outside the church waiting for Judith Collins to arrive. The way that she tells it, she said that the pastor at the church invited her to pray. Is that all true? Yeah, so Judith Collins arrives at the church and then, yeah, the pastor is at the door um, and the media are around uh, Judith Collins and the pastor asks if she would like to come and pray before she goes to cast her vote and she said, yes, sounds good. Now the next bit is where we meet our bone of contention because the media ends up photographing her praying and Judith Collins gets accused of politicising her faith. She said that the media essentially just barged in and took a photo. So what happened from your perspective at that point? There was no mention of don't come in. We didn't, you know, run in or anything. We just walked behind her as she walked in. Um, A couple of National Party media advisers were there and um, a couple of journalists checked that it was fine that we were in there and they said, yeah, no worries at all. And, yeah, I mean, if there was any problem, I... confident in saying that I think all of the journalists and people from the media would have been happy to leave Judith Collins to it if we had been asked to leave. It's not like it's staged. It's not like she said, I'm going to turn up and pray and the media are going to photograph me, but there was an invitation to pray and the journalists were there and they weren't told to go away. Yeah, exactly. There was, it was not staged at all. We weren't told that this was going to happen. She, I imagine, didn't think this was you know, on the cards for what was going to happen. We were just told she was going to cast her vote and it, yeah, just so happened it transpired that way. Nevertheless, probably she later said, you know, it was all the media's fault for basically taking a photo, barging into a private moment. Well, we didn't barge in, no. Um, And we asked her, there was this media stand-up after she cast her vote and um, a couple of the reporters, we were were all asking about this. Um, And she told us then that she wasn't, didn't feel comfortable with us being there but didn't want to create a fuss and ask us to leave. Probably was maybe a little bit elevated by the fact that she has been pointedly mentioning her Christian faith in recent times and mentioning it in the debates and that kind of thing. So maybe it was interpreted as being part of that narrative for her. Yeah, we asked her about that and asked her after she had cast her vote and said a prayer whether she was using it to try and grab votes or whatever. Um, And she just said that she has always been religious. She gave us some of her religious background and said that she referred to her religion in her maiden speech, and this was nothing new. From your perspective, you you probably, are, I, don't, I don't know whether this is true, but you're probably a little bit put out at being criticised for 
taking the photos given no one told you not to? I mean, I <laughs> we're criticised all the time, so I mean, I so yeah, I'm not that bothered by it. Hey, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for having me. In the end, the national leader and her critics both have a point. There's no evidence the prayer was pre-planned or staged as cynically as some believed. But when Judith Collins sat down at the pew and clasped her hands together in a classic image of Christian prayer, it's very unlikely she thought the moment would stay just between her and God. Hayden Donnell there on the controversy over Judith Collins at prayer after casting her vote in Tamaki last weekend. And he was also talking to RNZ's Katie Scotcher, one of those who witnessed it. Earlier in this election campaign, some critics complained there was too little policy to ponder, just bits and pieces proposals being drip-fed through the campaign. But with less than a week to go now, the bulk of it is now out there. And where do you go as a voter to weigh up what they're all offering? Hayden Donnell now looks at the efforts the media have made to help us compare and contrast the party's various policies and asks an expert which ones really help and how. With the 2020 general election a week away, New Zealand is again awash in online tools aimed at helping guide voters' decisions. TVNZ's Vote Compass test has already been taken more than 330,000 times. It quizzes aspiring voters on issues like whether we should sell assets or tax the rich, then uses the results to link them with a political party. Massey University's On the Fence works a little differently, asking respondents to use a sliding scale to measure where they sit on various issues. The spin-off's policy employs the novel approach of asking people whether they like parties' actual policies. Those are the big three, but there's also the option of turning to Scoop's The Dig or more niche voting tools like I Side With or Political Compass to direct your voting choice. Most of these tools are useful guides to what parties actually stand for in what has been criticised as a policy-light election. They're also a bid to increase New Zealanders' democratic participation. That's an admirable goal. Nearly 700,000 enrolled voters failed to show up at the polls in the 2017 general election, suggesting widespread disenfranchisement or disengagement with our political system. But these tools have been around in some form for several elections now, and New Zealand's voting stats haven't improved all that much. Some of them have been criticised for their design, with Vote Compass coming under fire in a past election for including the racist question, how much control should Māori have over their own affairs? I asked Dr Lara Greaves, a political scientist at Auckland University, whether these voting tools are worth the media investment and how they could be improved. I think the main thing around voter advice applications, which is what we call them, is that they're meant to reduce what we call the information costs, which is deciding who exactly to vote for, because people don't want their vote to kind of go to waste in any way, and they want to make sure they're really choosing someone that kind of replicates their values and will represent them. And so voter advice applications are there to try to reduce the information costs and ultimately increase voter turnout. So we've seen in terms of Vote Compass, we've seen TVNZ use a lot of the data sort of as quasi-polling. I think in terms of the use of them in the public is it's for what would probably actually only be a small group of that sort of more undecided voter or people that weren't going to vote. And if they're really unsure about who to vote for, I guess for a lot of those people, it's probably one of multiple factors that contribute to them going and eventually voting. Even the Electoral Commission struggles to get a couple of hundred voters in their non-voter surveys, so it's really hard to kind of have an evidence to 
based approach as to whether these voter advice applications are really working. I know there's been international studies that have shown like yeah, small shifts, like for example in Canada and others, but generally I don't think of them as a negative thing. Now there's yeah. been a pro- proliferation of these voting tools. Do you have an opinion on which is the best one? I personally do enjoy On the Fence. I like the fact that you can rate things in terms of importance to you. With any of these, the downside really is the person or the people who set the questions and who set exactly which policy areas are going to be examined, there's like a potential disproportionate amount of control flowing through to what the tools end up being. Generally what happens with these things is they set the key policy issues or criteria for different different tools. I would say policy is a bit more intense and covers a lot more areas than, say, something like Vote Compass or On the Fence does or even I Side With does. But basically, someone has to decide at some point in the research process what are the big issues going to be that we're going to actually ask questions on and then how are they going to be formatted or worded as mm. well, and that can kind of elicit different opinions in the public. We're talking about question design a little bit there. How important is question design in terms of the usefulness of these tools? I know that Vote Compass actually got in trouble for what was perceived as a racist question, how much control should Māori have over their affairs? How much can these types of questions actually skew the results? Yeah, quite a lot. So if I asked you right now and I said I could, I could word a statement something along the lines of someone should, if they're suffering from a painful and incurable disease, be able to make the choice to in their own life, okay? If I gave you that statement versus I gave you one along the lines of should we legalise assisted suicide, there's been huge differences in surveys over the years and in polls of the way that we can kind of push people into different positions based on the wording of the question. I think there's always going to be the odd question that doesn't quite work along the lines of the Māori issues one um, definitely has been one that's been you know, well identified in terms of inherent assumptions in the wording of the question sometimes. And again, that relates back to how I was saying we have a lot of power to shape responses. Wording a question a certain way and then reporting on the results of that. You mentioned that you like On the Fence. I I do too, it's fun. I I wonder whether there's sometimes false binaries because if people don't know it, you can kind of rank how important you feel an issue is and and there's two sides. Mm. And on one, for instance, there's how much should the government prioritise the environment rather than the economy? And mm. then you can go like 60% environment and 40% economy. Uh, is that potentially a problem as well? When you present something as a binary that's not necessarily a binary and not necessarily a binary to all people, and how people interpret the question is another thing that's really tricky to get around. I found, you know, the environment or the economy, pick one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to be just kind of a little bit of an odd yeah. question there. Is, is it possible to avoid these problems? I don't think it is, unfortunately. I think we have to be careful to always recognise those limitations and, and make them explicit. And like whenever media reports on these things, or there needs to be sort of some disclaimers there, and there often is about you know the sample size and those sorts of things, I think that, yeah, there's always going to be limitations in things that we do. So the spin-off has got the policy tool, which is just actual policies that candidates have submitted and you can fave them and then they give you a pie graph. Is that the way to do it so that you definitely get accurate results? Well, firstly, I really like the blind nature, how you can set it so you can't see 
which parties because people do have those inbuilt sort of biases towards different parties. So I think that's a real, real positive there. Again, it's that binary of liking something or not liking it or where you get that trade-off that, is, that I've talked about in terms of things being simple and quick versus quite detailed is that people potentially need a bit more background knowledge to be able to like look at that many policies. It has all of the right policies. It has all the detail that maybe the others don't. Mm. They can get into generalities, but maybe it feels a little bit too wonkish. Yeah, so it's kind of like I feel as though with Vote Compass, you can skip through it in a minute, um, yeah. whereas on the other end, policy, like you almost need to sit down and go, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to rank the policies and figure it out and go into all these different areas, which I think has the potential to lose people's attention, but then also has the potential for people to go more in depth and really think about yeah, policy preferences and research stuff and really think. So something like Vote Compass, you get your kind of quick sketch of what you might want. There might be a few flaws yeah. maybe in your results, but it might be more engaging for a totally disenfranchised voter. Yeah, yeah I would totally say that. And I guess that's all just going to depend on, yeah, the whole reason the person is approaching the tool. An advantage of these polls that they are just comparing policy. There's none of the, you know, personal back and forth. But are they distortionary in that way as well? Because people don't make a political decision in a vacuum. They do consider personalities and what people are like and whether they trust them. And that's not necessarily bad. Yeah, so we repeat, We have a friend who repeatedly gets top in, yeah. in all of these quizzes, and, but they won't vote for top. Um, because ultimately that's the example of like there still needs to be the personality or the people that that human voter has a connection with in some way. I think something like COVID-19 illustrates really well that it isn't just about policy, that we need to be able to trust in our leaders and we need to know that they show good judgment. Sort of the way that leaders have handled scandals and the way that leaders might handle a debate, I think all of those different things add up and reflect on really who we want as Prime Minister or who we want as our local MP. It's good for people to feel some kind of enthusiasm for who they're voting for. So if you, just lastly, if you could design your perfect uh, voting tool, yeah, what would it look like? And I wonder to what extent some of this voter advice stuff can be embedded more in like a continued cycle because we we don't we just we have elections, but actually policy and different political stuffs happening all of the time, not just every three years. So I wonder the extent to which things could be embedded. The real hard decision for a lot of us that are in sort of quantitative research and stuff is length versus detail. So something needs to be quite short and needs to be able to capture someone's attention. In my dream world, although this is like a real millennial perspective, is like you could have some kind of app that would pop up on someone's phone being like, hey, what do you think about the zero carbon bill? Like those sorts of things just pop up and it'd be more an integrated part of people's lives rather than just, I'm just going to think about policy in, in the last two months before the election or whatever it is. Like sweating for an exam. Yeah. Lara Greaves, lecturer in New Zealand politics at the University of Auckland, talking there to Hayden Donnell about the efforts some media outlets have made to pick through all the party's policies to help us decide how to cast our votes. As we heard there, it's no easy task picking through all the party's policies before making up your mind. But if our media matter to you, the pattern in past elections has been that our political parties push policies on big-ticket issues like tax, health and education, but broadcasting and media plans are often left to the last minute or overlooked entirely. 
But while the issue is not seen as a real vote-grabber by most political parties, the media are important to many Kiwis, and the government spends nearly a quarter of a billion dollars of their money on it each year, and rising. And in this post-COVID era, where they choose to spend that money could be critical. So, with the election now upon us, what's in our political party's manifestos for the media? Well, not a lot in short, but this week, the lobby group Better Public Media, which is dedicated to strengthening public service media, forced the issue with a live online debate featuring the broadcasting spokespeople from all three parties in the current government, Labour, the Greens and New Zealand First, and the National Party spokesperson Melissa Lee. Now, interestingly, three of those four were former journalists. Melissa Lee started out in newspapers before becoming a TV producer and then an MP, and New Zealand First's Jenny Marcroft was a news presenter on TV and radio before she went into politics. And Labour's Chris Farfoy, the current Minister of Public Broadcasting and Digital Media, was a political broadcast journalist at TVNZ as recently as 2008. On Monday, after the customary technological Zoom hiccups... Um, Melissa, can you can you hear us now? I can hear you. I, this is a merging of different technologies. I'm, used, I'm hearing the audio via my phone. The media and broadcasting policy debate was at times revealing, but revealed little new policy because there wasn't a whole lot of that. Labour has not yet released a media policy at all, and when one Zoom participant in London pointed out to the Minister Chris Farfoy that people were already casting their votes, the Minister replied in writing, If we throw all our policy out at once, we'll get no coverage, but I promise you it's not too far away. Though Chris Farfoy did tell Monday's debate, Labour does still want a new organisation to replace state-owned RNZ and TVNZ. Chris Farfoy also praised the Local Democracy Reporting Service, which is publicly funded via New Zealand On Air since 2018. The pilot programme for it placed eight reporters in local newsrooms around the country to cover local politics, with more to come next year after a funding boost this year. Nationals' Melissa Lee also applauded the same scheme. Uh, for the uh, democracy uh, reporting funding, I mean, I've always backed it um, when he was introducing it, and I think Gareth probably also agrees, and I think everyone in, in, in this call probably agree. That is actually based on the BBC model, and I've always said that you know we needed voices from the regions but in general, Melissa Lee has been a fierce critic of this government and its handling of the media. But, like Labour, her party also has no publicly available policy on the media for voters to ponder. Melissa Lee told Monday's meeting a national-led government would conduct a review to find out where the shortfalls are. And she seemed to say that she saw a shortfall in balance at RNZ. And I think there, uh, whether it's the stories and the news or whether, uh, you know, in terms of the documentaries that they actually do, the podcast, it has to be balanced. And I think when people actually realise that they're not balanced, that's when the people turn around and actually say they're not trustworthy. Melissa Lee said RNZ does well when, in her words, both sides of the political spectrum hates them. And that drew this response from Better Public Media Chair Dr Peter Thompson. Are you suggesting that there's a substantial uh, bias in RNZ's reporting here? All media, you might find that. I mean, look, I'm, as I said, I've clarified that I'm an all media person. I'm an all journalist. When I was actually training to be a journalist, I was told that to report, I had to report, report the facts and I had to get both sides of the story. And often you actually find that in, uh, of late, uh, often you find journalists who are actually not reporting, but who are commentating. I think sometimes that actually um, does disservice to the audience. Melissa Lee also went on to say she didn't support RNZ's plans for a multimedia youth service. And I think, you know, perhaps RNZ should focus um, on what they do well. 
Now, the Greens have published a media policy, and on Monday, Gareth Hughes, a former broadcasting spokesperson who was filling in for the current one, Chloe Swarbrick, said that the government needed to go faster and further with public media. But we haven't seen the, the, the response and the scale of ambition that I think the challenges demand of us. And I think we need to be honest and actually set a higher bar for expectations for the next term. As Green's spokesperson back in 2014, Gareth Hughes proposed a contestable fund for public interest journalism, and that's still Green's policy now, as is a non-commercial TV channel, but there's no budget or target date for that. The Greens policy released in July also pledges to support New Zealand On Air to continue funding local content and increase RNZ's funding in order to, in its words, employ journalists losing jobs in the private media sector. But how would a future Green government pay for all this? What we've said is a priority for us for forming the next government, if we are in that position to be negotiating, is a digital services tax to raise money so we can increase that funding. And the idea there is a tax on digital advertising revenue, which is also in the Greens' published policy. Gareth Hughes went on to accuse Coalition partner New Zealand First of being a handbrake on public media reform. But when New Zealand First Jenny Marcroft outlined New Zealand First's manifesto policies and aims, many of the Greens' ones are in it too. New Zealand First, she said, would return Māori TV's operations to Auckland's CBD to future-proof the broadcaster and create a contestable funding pool for journalism, and she backed the local democracy reporting scheme too. She said all this would cost a considerable amount, but she couldn't specify what that would be. New Zealand First doesn't believe that it's the role of government aid foreign-owned media organisations or private equity players, but that it is vital that journalism is sustained to ensure that robust democracy. Jenny Marcroft also said New Zealand First would end the free ride of the tech platforms like Facebook, Amazon and Google and require them to pay a digital services tax and also a fee when sharing New Zealand journalism on their platforms. New Zealand First, she says, also favours decommercialising TVNZ, but she said it has reservations about TVNZ and RNZ being replaced by one new entity. And it would not go for what she called the full-scale extravaganza of a non-commercial TV channel proposed by the Greens. So some clues there as to why little progress has been made so far by the current coalition government's cabinet. There was one area in which all four participants in Monday's debate were agreed, though, and that was opposition to Te Puni Kōkiri's plan for the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, Tamangai Paho, to fund a single Māori news service in response to concerns that some of this would lead to a less diverse range of Māori views in the news media. So don't expect that one to re-emerge next year. Now, there's no specific media or broadcasting policy at all in the Māori Party's manifesto, but it does say it would require the workforce at all state-funded broadcasters across all media to have a basic fluency level of te reo Māori. The ACT Party also has nothing about the media in its published policies, though that's perhaps not surprising, as its overarching aim is smaller government and less spending on non-core services. Top, the Opportunities Party, has the same policy that it formed back in 2017, sell TVNZ and use the proceeds to set up a public journalism fund as part of New Zealand On Air. It says RNZ should be able to compete for this funding along with other platforms. And Top's tax reform policy also says that the likes of Google and Facebook, which profit from news but don't create any, should pay their fair share of tax. The New Conservatives and Advanced New Zealand have no policies for the media or broadcasting in their published manifestos. But there's still a week to go, and therefore still a chance of something unexpected from one of the big two parties before the polls close next weekend. We'll keep an eye on it.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, as we heard earlier, National MP Melissa Lee doesn't like the way that some reporters air their own opinions in their journalism from time to time. So with that in mind, she may not have approved of TVNZ's political reporter Benedict Collins on Wednesday night's TVNZ One News. Today what we saw really was the National Party just trying to generate a bit of fake news. I think there's only really one way to sum up what we saw today from them, and that is dumb, dumb, dumb. That was his response to National Party people planting themselves along the route of Judith Collins' Auckland walkabout last Wednesday, with Melissa Lee and Auckland Central candidate Emma Mello in tow, while the press pack's cameras rolled. And they were also rolling after the reporters worked out what was going on. Yeah, no, I've, <clears throat> I've been involved in the party for a long time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty common. Yeah. Is it? To put supporters well, well, along no, the walk? No, no, I was in, in Podsby anyway. Yeah. Right. Okay. Any chance I can grab your name? Or it just seems like yeah. you guys were stacking the walk with... No, 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 there's a whole, a whole lot of general members of the public. However, this week, Judith Collins wasn't the only party leader busted for having plants acting the part in their electioneering. You're a small business owner. Can you tell us a bit about why you support the Sustainable New Zealand Party? Modern business practice is all about eliminating waste. I'm looking for a party that will work with business and support us in our transition to a greener economy. This election, you can vote for the environment and the economy. I took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday with Karen Hay on The Lately Show and other aspects of the campaign coverage as well this past week. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website if you missed it or the Media Watch section of the RNZ app or you'll find it in our podcast feed. We'll be back with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night as well and then back again with a live post-election Media Watch special at 10am next Sunday here on RNZ National.